0: my bookshelf at home, there is a large, musty, 15-pound, and I know because I weighed it this week, Bible. On the cover of this large Bible is the name Robert Wynn in gold letters. It belonged to my great-great-grandfather, and if you, if you crack it open, it says that it was published in 1851. It was given to me just a couple of years ago by my widowed aunt. And it sits where I study at my home. Recently, my son pulled it down off the shelf. He wanted to look at it. And as he did, I could see his eight-year-old mind wondering why I had this large Bible. He wondered about the names that were written in it, what it all meant. Even for him, he could barely grasp what it means to live in 1951... ...and his mind was trying to grasp 1851. And I found myself in that moment... ...wanting to reach into his heart... ...and give him a vision... ...of long-term Christian faithfulness. And I realized also in that moment... ...how strange all of this must have seemed to him. Here he, he was, holding something in his hands... ...that connected his life to a time frame and a spiritual legacy that he could barely apprehend. And yet, what I wanted for him is, of course, something of what God wants for all of us as we hold our Bibles in our hands. God calls us to lift our eyes above and beyond this visible world and to to press on to the future glory that's in store for the church of Jesus Christ. God calls us in the midst of this pragmatic, living for today, emoji world. He calls us to long-term faithfulness. The Bible says much about this. The psalmist says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. In the New Testament we read, for through the Spirit, by faith... We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. All of this is very strange to a world of instant pleasure and immediate success. And it's in light of that strangeness that I want to ask this question this morning. What does long-term faithfulness look like? What should God's waiting church do? What should occupy... ...the Christian's attention and energy in this world. That's what I want to consider with you from our text in 1 Timothy. What's interesting as we begin is that that Paul gives us a vision of long-term faithfulness... ...in the face of a very immediate and practical problem. Before we get to that problem, let's note that this problem is so pressing... ...that it leads Paul once again... ...to depart from his usual pattern of offering a section on thanksgiving. That's what he usually does when he's writing his letters. But Remember, back in Galatians... ...which was incidentally the very first New Testament letter... ...included in our Bibles that Paul wrote. Paul skips the thanksgiving section... ...because in that case there is very little for which to give thanks. We learn in Galatians chapter 1... ...that that the church there had, had received another gospel... And they were deserting God. And Paul, the apostle, is shocked. And as he surveys the damage, later in that letter, he compares himself to a mother willing to endure the anguish of childbirth all over again until Christ reclaim and remake the Galatians in his image. Nothing elicited Paul's zeal as an apostle than threats to the well-being of ...of his spiritual children. And so it is in our text this morning. Paul is writing here... ...not as, not as a tender mother figure... ...but as a spiritual father to Timothy. Notice verse 2. He, he calls him my true child in the faith. And the immediate problem that leads him to write... ...is not, not those who were receiving another gospel... But in this case, it's with those who are teaching different doctrine. And so Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy, his longtime missionary companion. And we know that Timothy was young. Uh, he was perhaps a bit shy and timid. He may have had some health problems. But Paul wants here to reach into his heart and, and have him embrace a long-term view of Christian Faithfulness in the ministry, yes, but in the Christian life more broadly. And he gives him three marks of long-term faithfulness that, that apply to you and me today. The first mark of long-term faithfulness we see in our text is, is to persist against false teaching. To persist against false teaching. Now, now I say persist because Paul is actually... In verse 3, recalling an earlier command that he had given to Timothy. A command that evidently still applies at the time of Paul's writing. And applies all the more now in Paul's absence. Notice verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Now Paul had established the church at Ephesus. In fact, he had spent two years teaching at Ephesus, and yet there came a time, we read about it in Acts chapter 20, where Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders, and he he tells them that it is his expectation that he would never see their face again, he knew that the Lord had plans for him in Jerusalem and beyond, but he tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that after his departure, false teachers would infiltrate the church as fierce wolves. To deceive the disciples. And now the time had come. And and Paul is writing to Timothy. And he's telling Timothy, Timothy, I want you to stay there. And I want you to stay the course. And I want you to stay, notice 3 and 4, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. You can imagine timid Timothy opening this letter. And this is the first thing that his forefather in the faith is telling him to do. And this letter, by the way, was designed to be read in the presence of the church. Including the presence of the very individuals that Paul is indicting here. Paul says Timothy must charge them. This is a strong word, a a military word. He's, He's to command them to do what? To stop. To stop teaching anything that is not according to Christ and his gospel. Anything that misuses the truth of God's word. And Paul gives as examples these individuals' preoccupation with myths and endless genealogies. Now these these myths were probably concocted legends about Old Testament figures. Stories spun out of thin air about Old Testament individuals. Far beyond what the scriptures reveal. Titus 1 calls them Jewish myths. So for example, Genesis says that Adam and Eve had other children. And... So some of these myths would be about their names and their backgrounds and their histories and what happened to them. All of it made up, all of it for Paul, an endless, wearying waste of time. In fact, later in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, Paul will say this about the individuals preoccupied with this. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And we have our own examples today, don't we? Private Jesus devotions and stories of children's trips to heaven. Accounts of extraordinary spiritual powers. Lessons for harnessing miracles for personal gain. Psychic readings. Predictions about the future. Prophecies about the return of Christ. And much more, all of it in endless supply online and in bookstores. And all of it unbiblical, soul-emptying, cotton candy garbage. Paul is radical here. And he says long-term faithfulness means steadfastly opposing these different doctrines. Now why? Why is Paul so worked up about Well, Paul is interested in teaching that is useful. Teaching that leads to growth. Doctrine that is beneficial for life. Back in that farewell speech in Acts 20, he recalls his ministry in Ephesus and he tells the elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Paul is interested in that which is profitable, and and by implication, we should be as well. And so the question is, how do we know when something is profitable, useful, or when it's useless? Well, Paul says later that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So so at one level, if it comes from the Bible, it's got to be profitable. And yet there's so much that purports to be from the Bible. How do we know whether it's truly biblical? We could ask other questions. We could ask, does it accord with what the Christian church has held for centuries? Does it fuel my trust in Christ? Does it it lead me to worship the triune God? All these are are helpful diagnostic questions, but I I think there's one that's even... Better. Does it draw me into or away from the face-to-face communion of my soul with the living God? What the Lord wants to do in this whole Bible thing, in this whole gospel thing, in, the, in this whole human existence thing, is to reveal to you the glory of his own triune being through Christ in an unbreakable bond of fellowship with you. The living God who has immortality wants to clothe you with life through his risen Son. And by doing that, he wants to impart to you The glory and the satisfaction and the stability of knowing Him. There is nothing more profitable, nothing more useful than knowing the living God through Jesus Christ. And yet there is a temptation in the church, and there is a temptation woven into all of our hearts to shy away from the power and the glory of God soul's desire. And in its place to allow a spirit of self-sufficiency to pollute our fellowship with the living God. To intrude upon the ministry and life of the church. And Paul is saying that long-term faithfulness requires denying this temptation and fixing our eyes upon a Savior and a heavenly world that we cannot see ...and drawing from our Savior by faith the very power and resurrection life... ...that can sustain us day by day by day by day. Well, this leads us to the second mark of long-term faithfulness. If the first is to persist against false teaching and different doctrine in all of its forms... and, ...and earnestly pursue that which is profitable... The second mark is to pursue godly love. To pursue godly love. Notice Paul says that the the goal of opposing falsehood is is not to put false teachers in their place. The goal of avoiding useless talk is is not so that our ministries can excel in efficiency. It's not to build a brand. It's not to gain a following. It's not... So that Timothy can show who is in charge. The goal is not even, we have to be careful here, not even to win people to Christ or to transform the world. Although we pray for that, we labor for that, we praise God for when that happens. No, no the goal, the target among those earnest for long term faithfulness, Paul says, is love. love that issues from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Love for the long haul. Love for the long haul is love that reflects something of God's own gracious heart towards sinners. It is love that does not shift with the world's priorities because it flows from the God who is the same yesterday, today and forever. It is love that rejoices in the truth. This is the kind of love that Christians are to bring to bear in their homes, and in the world, and in the church. There are a thousand areas that we could apply this to, but one area, it seems to me, where Christians need to aim for love these days is in the area of gender and sexuality. Transgender ideology is growing in the world. The idea that, that some can, can struggle with their gender in a way that doesn't align with their biological sex. I believe that transgender ideology is in fundamental opposition to a biblical view of human personhood. It is an attempt to eradicate every Everything that would remind us of the living God. But did you know that those who struggle with their gender, their sense of self, among them 41% try to kill themselves every year, compared to just 4.6% in the general population. That, that is a staggering statistic. And these individuals need the truth in love. Well, who else needs this love? Your spouse needs this kind of love. Your children need this kind of love. Your, your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church need this kind of love. Your parents need this kind of love. Your friends, strangers in the world, every, everyone we come in contact needs love. The love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And yet we know, don't we, that this kind of love is, of ourselves, impossible. This kind of love has to be a supernatural miracle wrought in the heart. We know this because of ourselves, it is is impossible for us to have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And Paul is saying it's those things that produce this kind of love. What what is natural to us because of sin is to have a depraved heart and a fearful and unstable conscience and to exercise a faith that is insincere. What, What is natural to us, biblically speaking, is to be hostile toward God, not to love God. Romans 8, verse 7. What is natural to us is not to love one another, but to hate one another. Titus 3.3. How how are we to overcome this? How How are we to gain what Paul says generates the kind of love that we need? Well, friends, one thing must happen. Christ must come to us clothed, as Calvin puts it, in his gospel. And Christ must send his spirit into the deep places of our hearts and turn them to the glory of his person risen from the dead. Christ must become for you by faith from the scriptures an unending source of light and purifying power and satisfaction. And when, when he does this, he is doing nothing more than revealing who God is to you in a bond of unbreakable fellowship. This is the supernatural work of the gospel of the Lord Jesus in the heart of a sinner. And one evidence of this, one glorious fruit of the Spirit from this, perhaps the greatest evidence, is a Christian who is tender with the truth. A Christian who doesn't doesn't bully others with doctrine. A Christian who manifests the gentleness and the kindness of Christ. Remember what Jesus said that one time that he described his own personality. He didn't do it very often, but, but there was a time that he describes his personality in contrast to other people. And he said, I am meek and lowly in heart. I am gentle. I want to ask you this morning, have you, have you taken that yoke upon your shoulders? Is it, is it your default to be Gentle with the truth. 2 Timothy 2 says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. I'm not saying there's no time for debate, no time for theological discussion... No time for courage. After all, Timothy must command the false teachers to stop doing what they're doing. I'm not saying that, that everyone needs to become a, a, a sappy kind of Christian, you know, speaking in kind of hushed tones all the time and handing out copies of chicken soup for the soul to everyone. I am saying that, that in all that we do, that we pursue love, ...that flows from a godly conviction rooted in the scriptures... ...that we live to please the Lord alone. Do this by the grace of God... ...and you will be able to love in the midst of hurt relationships... ...and personal disappointments. Do this and you will be willing to endure evil... ...and receive unjust criticism and even undeserved outrage... ...because... You're looking forward to the city that has foundations whose maker and builder is God. Because you're not living for the approval of other people. Because above all, you know that it is Christ whose life flowing from heaven is at work in you by faith. And this leads us to the final mark that Paul gives us of long-term faithfulness. If the first is to persist against ...false teaching and different doctrine. The second is to pursue godly love. The third mark, in verse 5, is to promote the truth of Christ from the word of God. Promote the truth of Christ from the word of God. It, it, it's not uh, complicated. Uh, this final point is, is obvious. Uh, this final point is the foundation for the first two points... After all, you can't oppose falsehood or pursue love... ...without holding fast to God's Word. It is by trusting in the promises of God in the Bible... ...that our heart is purified. It's as the Spirit of Christ... ...bears witness by and with the Word in our hearts... ...that we are the children of God... ...that we gain a a good conscience. It's only as we submit our lives to the word of God in sincere faith that we're able to truly love other people. So so what I want to point out on this third point is that all of this 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 role for the Bible in your life is part of God's plan. God has a plan for your life. You ever heard that? I want you to remember Jesus praying to his father as he's heading to the cross and In John 17, and he says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus was praying that the Father would execute his plan for his people's long term faithfulness. Now, the plan makes appearance here in our text. Back in verse 4, when Paul says that the false teachers are promoting speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. That word stewardship is a a big word. Paul is talking here about the, the orderly plan, the arrangement for the church's growth. The false teachers were Unloving because they rejected God's plan that his people be built up through the pure preaching of the Word of God. And just as quick proof, as we as we head to a close, turn back with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Colossians chapter 1, just a, a few pages to the left. Colossians 1:25, Paul is talking about his own ministry from the Lord. And he says in verse 25, I became a minister, notice, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. The same word, stewardship, the the plan, the orderly plan for the church's growth. And what was that stewardship that, that God had given to Paul? Well, notice the end of verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. That was Paul's call. That was Timothy's calling. That's the church's calling today. When you study the Word of God, when you when you hear the Word of God, when you meditate upon the Word of God, you are keeping in step with the plan of God to build His church into long-term faithfulness. And Paul says here in in verse six that that neglecting the Word of God and And by neglecting that which the word of God produces, certain people have wandered away into vanity. Wandered away in the sense of of not keeping in step with God's orderly plan for the body of Christ. Now, Now, so to speak, out of joint, dislocated in their spiritual bones. know that it's not only false teachers to whom this can happen, uh, this can happen to those within the church as well. We can become spiritually dislocated in our hearts over time, maybe, maybe due to a, a severe injury that you've experienced, or, or maybe just over time uh, this is happening without realizing it. We can become occupied with, with unprofitable doctrines. We can grow hard-hearted toward the truth. We can begin to promote the self rather than the word of God. The good news is that the long-term faithfulness that your Father in heaven wants to work, uh, wants to call from you, he he is pleased to work in you uh, by his grace. The Father in heaven has sent his Son as the physician of your soul. He has come to the sick and to the broken. He has come for those who are spiritually dislocated. And when you cry out to him to wash you with the word, he will grant to you a sincere faith and a good conscience again. And you'll you'll find your heart being purified by the grace of God. You'll find your your spiritual bones, as it were, settling back into place and your your strength increasing and your desire returning for long-term faithfulness. That's what we want, right? Well, it will happen not because of you, but because of Christ in you. He is the very hope of the visible glory that is sure to come. May it be so for each one of us here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your word. We thank you that that it's profitable because it is your word. Because it reveals your very heart toward sinners in Christ. We pray that we would know you know you in the bond of fellowship, that you would renew in us, kindle in us, a great zeal to know you in Christ, to love your word, and to love one another until the day of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.